Well, good morning, C3 Powerhouse, and I'm delighted to be sharing my video with you today for something different. And we are beginning our series today. I couldn't be there in person, but I really wanted to kick this series off because I'm so pumped about it. As you know, 2021, our theme as a church for the year is Deeper in the Word. And we promised that for one month this year, for four weeks, we would take one book of the Bible and we would unpack it uh, together over a four-week period and unpack the themes of that book. And that's what we're doing today. We're looking at the book of Philippians, one of my favorite books in the New Testament. And over the next four Sundays, we're going to be unpacking this book. Next week, Katie Haldane, the Bible college teacher from Sydney, uh, the, the originator of Trash Your Bible, is going to uh, share a message with us out of the theme of Philippians. And the overarching theme of Philippians is one of joy. So we've called this series, The Secret of Joy, The Secret of Joy. And I know you are going to love it. I know you're going to want to read the book of Philippians a, a number of times. I know as we uh, just really give the background and introduce the concept of it, that you're going to want to really go deeper in the Word and read this book yourself. So let's, let's give some background or some context to this particular letter. It's called an epistle or a pastoral letter. And there are a number of uh, these types of books in the New Testament. So Paul writes a whole stack of these. The, the majority of the New Testament actually are letters that have been written by the apostles. And the main writer of the letters is Paul. And so Paul writes these letters to churches. Now, you would think there'd be some kind of system of putting these letters in the New Testament according to when they were written, but no, that's not how it works. What's actually been done is they've taken all the letters that were known to be written by Paul and put them together and said, now let's put these in order, wait for it, from the biggest to the smallest, uh, not in historical order or chronological order. So they go from Romans as the biggest of his letters. So it goes to Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, two different letters. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians that we're going to look at today. Colossians. Uh, then it goes on to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Oh, sorry, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. They're all the letters or epistles that have been written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, now, these letters, these letters are usually being um, sort of dictated to a scribe. And someone would be scribing the letters while Paul, and often it's not just Paul, but it's Paul and Silas or Paul and Timothy or one of his associates. But Paul would be the main author of them and it would be read out loud or spoken out loud, recorded on a tablet or papyrus by whoever it might be who's recording that letter for them. And sometimes Paul will actually go, hey, hey guys, and I'm just saying hello in my own handwriting here and say good day to this person and say good day to that person. So Paul uh, writes it himself, but most of the time there's a scribe writing it. Now, the, these letters or epistles are written to either churches or individuals, and they're called pastoral letters or pastoral epistles. And Paul, who most of these cases, he started the church in a particular town, like the town of Philippi, and now he's writing the letter to the church that he started 10 years later to the church, or the, the people in Philippi, and we call it the Philippians. So it's like the church in Colossae and it's Colossians. That's how it gets its name. And he's either writing to a church, the pastoral letters, or he's, he's writing to an individual, 
Like there's one Timothy, two Timothy, two letters to Timothy, one of his great disciples. And these are leadership letters, Titus or even Philemon, a whole different purpose. So each of the letters has someone in mind. They're designed, if they're written to a church, to be delivered to the leaders of the church in that city. And often it might meet in their home or a church building's been built a bit later on, but mostly in a home. And it's designed to be read out loud to everybody in the church. And some of the letters are actually designed to be read out loud in this church and then taken to the next church in the same region. So that's the the vibe of the letters. Now, what you've got to understand is each of these letters is written to a specific church in a specific location at a specific time and often responding to specific issues in that church. And so when you read the letter, it's really important that you understand, well, what's the context? Who's, Who's writing it? Who's it being written to? What's being addressed in the letter? And uh, what's the culture that's going on in that point? So, so for example, uh, in one of, the, one of Paul's letters, he writes and says the women should be silent in the church. And if you took that out of context, you'd say women shouldn't talk in church. But actually, someone's given a report of something specific that's happening in that church. And Paul is addressing a pastoral situation. Some people believe that that women in that church that he writes to were yelling out in the middle of church, yelling out questions, yelling out stuff in in the actual meetings and disrupting the meetings. And Paul's written back as a pastoral response. And so you've got to understand that often reading the epistles... There are themes that come through, but you've got to understand the whole theme rather than just take one verse out of context to fit your ideas, because otherwise you'll you'll get the Bible mixed up. You've got to read it as the themes of the Bible. Someone described it like this. It's like listening to one end of a phone conversation without being able to hear what's going on at the other end. And if you made a decision about uh, someone just because you heard one end of a phone conversation, it could be completely different if you understood what was being talked about at the other end. So that's why when we study the Bible and we deep dive and we go into it, it's great to understand who's this letter written to, who's it from, what's the reason they've written it, and what are the issues that are being addressed, and also what's the culture of the day. So we start out in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, and it says this, Paul and Timothy, we'll come to that in a moment, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. So the church has been going for about 10 years. There is a leadership structure in place, the overseers or elders, bishops and deacons. And Paul's writing to them with his uh, sidekick, his young leader, Timothy, and they're writing it from a Roman prison. So this is what it is. All right. So let's talk about, well, who's Paul and Timothy? What's What's their vibe? And if you're new to church, I'm so glad you're with us today. If you have never really studied the Bible, I hope that as you hear about even just this part of the Bible, your hunger to read the Word of God and to go deeper and get a greater understanding Uh, will be ignited. The Apostle Paul is a hero of the New Testament. Apart from Jesus, obviously, 
Paul is like, he, he's the, one of the main characters of the whole of the New Testament. He is a leadership whirlwind. He is a passionate man on mission who's unstoppable. He's zealous. He's passionate. He, he gets himself into a little bit of trouble sometimes with his passion and with his drive forward. He's hardworking. He, he doesn't take anything as I'm owed this. He, he works hard. Now, he was born uh, from, of Jewish parents, so he's a Jew by birth, in a city called Tarsus. Now, Tarsus was a Roman, was actually part of the Roman Empire, and so because he was born there, he wasn't just Jewish by upbringing, but he was also a Roman citizen, and that gave him a whole lot of rights, which we'll talk about later. As a Roman citizen, here's what you've got to understand. He had two names. Saul was his Hebrew name. But Paul was his Roman name. So in the early parts of we, the introduction to him, he's known as Saul because he's, he's, a, he's a Jewish guy and he's a Pharisee. We'll talk about that in a moment. And so everyone knew him as Saul. But as he got on to his missionary trips as an apostle taking the gospel to the world, it was mostly the Roman world. And so he began to be referred to as Paul, which was his Roman name. Uh, now, Paul was an academic genius. He was a brilliant scholar. He could mix it with the best of scholars of his day. He was, as a Jewish man, he was a Pharisee, which means that was the select of the elect. He was, he was well-trained. He wasn't just any Pharisee. He was trained by a famous teacher, the most famous of his day, Gamaliel, and he was trained by Gamaliel. He, was, he followed the law to the letter. He was a zealot. So when Christianity came along and Jesus came along and, the, the, and there was a feeling that when you became a Christian, you, did, you are now not following the Jewish law to its nth degree, he began to persecute people for beginning to turn the other way. He began to throw them in jail. He, he actually oversaw the first stoning of the first martyr, Stephen, and it's recorded in Acts. So he, he had a position of authority as a Pharisee. The Bible says that, that when they stoned Stephen, they laid their garments at uh, Saul's feet. That's not just saying that Saul looked after the coats. It wasn't like the coat boy. There's a sense that he had laying it at his feet. He was giving his authority to the stoning of Stephen. So he was an elite Jewish Pharisee, brilliant academic mind and scholar. And God chose him because of his zealousness, because of his background, because of his passion. God chose him to become an apostle. He had an encounter with Jesus, and we won't talk about that so much today, but an encounter with Jesus that radically rocked his world, and he became the foremost missionary for the Christian life. He was passionate. So after this encounter, you find that through the book of Acts, as you read through the book of Acts, uh, Saul, then Paul, becomes the main character on his missionary journeys. He goes on at least three significant missionary journeys out of Jerusalem and out of Antioch, uh, all around uh, Israel, around Asia, and then into Europe. So... The first trip he went on, he planted. I'm just giving you some background today. I'm being more of a teacher than a preacher. I am going to preach, but we're just laying the foundation of this series. Hope you're doing well. Tell, turn to your neighbor right now and say, you're going to learn some stuff today and it's going to help you. Awesome. Turn to your other neighbor and say, I, I want to discover the secret to joy. There we go. You're doing well. All right. Here we go. The first journey, he planted at least four churches. 
uh, Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. They were all, they were all uh, in the Asian region uh, of, of the day. Uh, in the one town, Lystra, there was a young man, Timothy, who got saved during the planting of that church. And so when Paul began his second missionary journey with his um, fellow apostle, Silas, they came back, they visited the first four churches that they planted out of nothing to see and to strengthen them. They found that Timothy was a young leader who people said, this guy's awesome, he's only young, but he's, a, he, he's got something on him. And Paul sensed that there was something about him. And so he said, you're coming with me and Silas on this missionary journey. So Timothy now is part of a, an apostolic company traveling to plant churches. As they move on, uh, they, they begin a church, and we'll get to this very soon, they begin a church that's not just in the current region, it's the first church planted in Europe. All right, now the other character that you need to know, so this is, this is Saul, who's Paul, writing the letter, Timothy, a young, uh, devout disciple who comes on the journey with him, and then there now, 10 years after the planting of the church, they're in jail, and they're writing, they're writing this letter back to the church that's established in Philippi. And the, the person who's the one who carries the letter, the, the envoy, if you like, because that's often part of how, what happens, is a guy called Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. He's from Greece. He's from, sorry, the Greek area of Macedonia where Philippi is. And he's been sent by the church to Paul and Timothy in jail to bring them a care pack to, to provide for them. Because often when you're in jail, you, you didn't get looked after and get three meals a day. You needed someone on the outside to bring food to you, to bring supplies to you. So the church in Philippi sent regularly to Paul wherever he was in jail at different points because he spent a bit of time in jail. They sent food packs and care to look after his needs. And so this has come from Epaphroditus. He's brought a report. This is how the church is going in Philippi. Looked after Paul's need. And so Paul has fellowship with him. He's recorded this letter to, for Epaphroditus to take back. Epaphroditus gets so sick on the journey, he almost dies. But Paul sends him back with this letter and a great sense of warmth and love. And so we find in Philippians 2.25, but I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. I think he probably would have liked to keep him, but it's necessary I send him back. My brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. So that's the, the origin of the letter, is sending back Epaphroditus with the letter with gratitude. All right, so th there's the characters, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus. What about Philippi the town? Because to really go deeper in the word, you don't just need to understand the context, the, what, why something's being written, who it's from and who it's to. You've got to understand a little bit of cultural history. So Philippi, I'm going to get a map to put up, but Philippi is in the northern part of modern Greece. Uh, in the days when Paul went to Philippi, there was two parts of modern Greece. There was the northern part called Macedonia and the southern part called Achaia. Achaia was where Corinth was. The northern part is where Philippi was. Stay with me. I'm going to move through really quickly. So uh, the town of Philippi was originally a gold rush town. 
And then uh, Alexander the Great's father, Philip, had actually renamed it Philippi after himself, you know, just like a very good uh, man with a strong ego. He's called the town Philippi. So its roots in this area, it's a, it's a Greek town. But along the way, the Roman Empire, as it takes over from Greece, begins to, to move further and further out, and Philippi becomes the center of some significant military battles. I won't go deeply into this, but uh, you know, about 40 years before Jesus was born, there was a major military battle there that really was the beginning of the end of the Roman Republic and Rome becoming an empire. Feels like a history lesson here, doesn't it? Stay with me. As a result of the battles that went on, uh, Augustus became the Caesar of, of Rome, and here's what happened. A whole lot of generals and soldiers who fought against him were sent from Rome to this place called Philippi, and they were given land, because Rome owned it, they were given land, and they were given houses, they were given tax-exempt status as ex-soldiers, and they lived in Philippi, and Philippi was what was called a colony. It was, a, it was really a, an extension of Rome. If you lived in Philippi and you're a Roman citizen, you're as good as anyone living in Rome. Philippi to Rome is like the Gold Coast is to New Zealand. So many Kiwis live there, it's almost pretty much New Zealand itself. Sorry, or Bondi is that, I'm not quite sure. But Philippi, it was a colony. All right, so that meant that there was lots of Romans. There was Greeks there, Greek history. But the majority of it was Roman. And so there was, they were proud about being a colony of Rome. They were proud that they were citizens of Rome. There was a lot of ex-military people there. There were a lot of Olympians there. It was a place that, where there was retirement. There was wealth there. It was a wealthy city. It was a, it was a significant city when you went from, from uh, Rome and from Asia to Europe and backwards and forwards. People would cross through, the, through this uh, city, this town of Philippi. Thought to be ten to fifteen thousand people strong, and so it was a it was a significant town. Um, if we if we look here, you'll you'll see that when Paul writes to this uh, church that meets in Philippi, he appeals. He uses language that they'll be able to relate to. For example, in Philippians 1.27, he says, "Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven." conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. He says, the, 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 uh, the sense of what he's saying there is, yes, you're citizens of Rome, but above all, you're citizens of heaven. You're from another place. Uh, fix your mind and eyes on that place. So the overall theme of the, letter, of the letter to the Philippian church, 10 years after it started, is one of warmth, one of love. It's called the most joyful of all of the epistles. Uh, because that church has partnered with Paul and they've sent numerous times money and support for him. He's visited there on his third missionary trip to strengthen the church. And there's this real beautiful sense of partnership with the church. So there's this beautiful warmth. So when, when he writes in the beginning of the letter in verse 3, he says, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. Every time I think of you guys, 
brings a smile to my face. Sounds a little bit like our church, C3 Powerhouse. Whenever I think of you, brings a smile to my face. Whenever I pray, I make my request for all of you with joy. For you've been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it till now. So there's this beautiful warmth in the letter. The theme across the whole of the letter, because the, the people of Philippi, they're disciplined people, military, Olympians. There, there's a sense that these guys are, are, are know how to be disciplined and focused and partner in advancing the gospel. That's their heritage. But Paul talks not just about being disciplined, but about joy. And that's the theme. He writes them and says, you guys, I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's our memory verse for the week. He says, I, I, I want you to count it all joy. He, he talks about the choice of joy. And we're going to unpack this over the next few weeks. He talks about how to, how to find joy even when you're anxious by what you think about. All these ideas. And in the middle of it all, he addresses a little pastoral spat that's going on. A couple of the sisters have not been getting on well. And Epaphroditus obviously reports that to him. And in Philippians 4, 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And he says, I plead with Eudea, I think that's how you say it, and I plead with Syntyche, to be of the, sounds like a Kiwi lady, Sintik, he's Sintik. Anyway, sorry, Teresa, we love you. And I plead with Sintik to be of the same mind in the Lord. Obviously, there's been some clashes going on and Paul, as the apostles writing, going, you guys, let's sort it out. And he goes on and tells them how to sort it out. So this is, that's the overview. That's who this letter's being written to. And the, the, the secret of joy that I just want to take the next seven or so minutes to, to have a look at that we discover uh, the first part of the secret of joy of Paul is that he knows what it is to live life on mission. Listen to this verse that we may have heard before in Philippians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Come on, he's writing to Greeks and Romans. They understand the Olympics. They know what it is to press on to get a goal. And Paul's writing and saying, guys, this is one of the great secrets to joy. You've got to live a life on mission. You've got to live a life on point. You've got, to, you've got to have something that burns in your bones, that stops you from looking behind you and causes you to get out of bed in the morning with a passion for life. And joy will come from that place. Paul is able to access a joy because he's not living just for himself and he's not living just to live a comfortable life. He's living with a, with a heavenly unction to do whatever he can to introduce people to the good news of Jesus Christ, to plant churches that will then perpetuate the gospel of Jesus and connecting people to him. He's living life on mission. And the challenge as you read through Philippians and as you look at the, even how the church began in Philippi is, are you and I doing the same? Are we living on mission? Are we living with a divine purpose that's greater than ourselves? Because when you do have a divine purpose greater than yourself, then the day-to-day -day problems will just seem like hiccups. But if you don't have a real significant purpose that's inside of you, then you'll find that problems just become, they get bigger and bigger. 
Paul said the secret to dealing with your problems is actually to have a purpose and a mission. I want us to understand that at a greater level. And if, you, if we get it from this point of view, we'll find how the church was established really gives this same kind of function. If In Paul's second missionary journey, uh, we find that he's on the border of, um, of Asia and he wants to go to Bithynia. And he wants to travel there with his team, but the Holy Spirit stops him from going there. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, you find that he has a vision in the night of a man from Macedonia begging him to come over to Greece and to help, it, to help us. And so because of a, an inspired prompting of the Holy Spirit, one, to not go there, but two, to go to Macedonia. Paul's on mission to plant churches. He goes to Macedonia. He's heard the Holy Ghost. They jump on a ship from Troas. They go across the Aegean Sea and they, they come to the port and they travel about 110 miles to the major city. In Acts chapter 16, verse 12, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Okay, so this is Paul's MO. When he's going to plant a church, he looks for a synagogue and he starts there with Jewish people, people who are expecting a Messiah. And as a Pharisee, he comes to tell them there is a Messiah and his name is Jesus. But Philippi, and to have a synagogue, a town needs at least 10 Jewish men. So we understand that Philippi is not Jewish at all. It's Roman. There's not enough men to have a synagogue in the city. So instead, there's a prayer meeting that happens outside the city by the river. So when Paul says, well, there's no synagogue around, there's not many Jews around, he goes to the river and here's the thing, he goes to the place of prayer. If you're living life on mission, and it doesn't seem like you're getting any traction, then we've got to go to the place of prayer. We've got to go to a place where we begin to cry out for people in prayer. And so Paul goes to the outside of the town. He goes to the place of prayer. And there it says in Acts chapter 16, one of the, the, those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. This, this lady would have been wealthy. Purple cloth was expensive. So she was a wealthy lady and she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart, we're in Acts 16, to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now they kept going back and forward out to the place of prayer each day and they'd be bringing friends and Paul's preaching. So now the first European believer is a woman called Lydia. And the church has been birthed. It now begins to meet in her home. That's often how churches started in someone's home. And so the church begins to meet in her home and go out and pray on the outskirts of town. Now something funny happens here. Over the next few days, as they're traveling out to the, to the place of prayer, a girl who's a clairvoyant, she's demon-possessed, sees Paul walking past with his associates and begins yelling at him. These men are servants of the Most High God. They're telling you how to be saved. This is a demon-possessed girl. Paul puts up with it because he's trying not to create a ruckus. But eventually, 
feisty Paul gets sick of it, turns to her, binds the demon, tells it to come out of it, her, it leaves her, and now she can no longer get these clairvoyant messages from demons anymore, and all hell breaks loose. The owners of the slave girl realize we're not going to make any money now because that, that girl's no longer a clairvoyant. They take them to the, the city center. They accuse them of being Jewish, not Christians, Jewish, and for causing an upset against uh, the emperor. And then suddenly they all pile on. They strip them naked. They beat them. And they, they just, they almost kill them and they throw them in jail. They, there must have been such an uproar because you weren't allowed to beat a Roman citizen and Paul was a Roman citizen. So there must have been such an uproar that he couldn't be saying, I'm a Roman citizen. They couldn't hear him because if you're a citizen of Rome, you did not get uh, beaten. You could not be prosecuted. You couldn't be uh, killed uh, under corporal punishment unless you'd actually had an appeal to a magistrate or to Caesar. So there was the privilege of being a Roman citizen. And so Paul got beaten, stripped naked, thrown in jail. And here's, here's where a very popular part of the Bible we hear about. Paul and Silas are in, in jail at midnight singing praises and hymns to God. And so often we take that and we go, oh, that's because no matter what goes on, we should praise God. And I, that's 100%. Rejoice in the Lord always is a choice that we make no matter what's going on. But I want you to think a little bit deeper about what went on here. I believe in this particular moment, there's not just the, joy, not just the choice to praise God, even though they were beaten and bloody, their backs were open and wounded. But there's a sense that Paul and Silas, they're on mission. They heard the Holy Spirit to come to this town. Uh, Paul went to other places like Athens and no one was converted. So they've, they've experienced what I believe is the greatest joy that any Christian can experience. They've seen their people come to Christ because of their direct witness. The Bible says there's more joy in heaven over one person getting saved. So, so there, there's a sense that, man, yes, we've been beaten. Yes, we've been humiliated. But we're on mission right now. There's a church that's been birthed. There's people beginning to pray and worship. There's people who believe and put their faith in Jesus. And so I believe that part of the reason that they sang and gave praise with gusto to God wasn't just a choice. Yes, it was a choice, but it was because they were on mission and they were beginning to see the Holy Spirit let us hear and this happened. And the Holy Spirit let us hear and this happened. I've heard an expression from, uh, from a great leader who says, you remember this, if you're under attack, you're on the right track. And sometimes what you and I have got to do when we're on the right track and things go wrong and we feel like we're under attack, we've got to remember things are going wrong because the devil's scared about us being on track. Things are going wrong because we're, we're doing God's will and we're focused on building his church and people coming to him. As a result of their praise and worship, there was an earthquake. You can read about it in Acts 16. And then the jailer got saved. And then his whole family got saved. And I imagine 10 years later, when this letter of Philippians was read out to the church, there was Lydia and her household. There was the jailer and his household. There would have been leading citizens now of Philippi who are part of the first church in Europe that had been started all those years ago. And as the, as the letter was written out, Paul's telling them, guys, I want you to find joy. I want you to press on to your highest calling. In fact, I, I love this. Last verse, as we bring it to a close here, we'll get a keyboardist to come on up. 
Paul is so fueled by living on mission that in Philippians chapter 1, he writes this and he says, I want you to know my dear brothers and sisters, love the warmth, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. I'm in jail. Come on, it's not pleasant. It's rough. I'm in Rome. Uh, I'm, being, I'm being looked after by the toughest of the guards of, of Caesar's household. And here I am. He, gets, he goes, but it's all good. I'm in jail, but it's all good. Why? Because I'm living life on mission. This is what he says. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. You couldn't shut this man up. He's in prison preaching to the soldiers who are guarding him. He's in prison preaching to the other people there. Later on, he says, he says that all the members of Caesar's household send your greetings. He said, because of my imprisonment, most of the believers have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. He's, he, he, Paul is looking at the upside because he's living on mission. People are hearing the gospel. Jesus' name has been proclaimed. People that you admire, soldiers, the elite of the soldiers here are hearing the gospel. Why don't you pray for them? That, that's what's in, in, intonated in this beautiful letter. So my question as we bring this to a close today, the beginning of this series, is for you and I to ask this question of ourselves. Are we living life on mission? Are you and I, do we, are, is there something that's greater than ourselves that it aligns with God's plan for humanity that we're living for? Are there friends that we're trying to reach for Christ? Are we, when we go to work, is part of our, our ethos and thinking, I want to share what God's done for me. I want to share who Jesus is. One of the great secrets to joy is that we live for something greater than ourselves, for the advancement of the kingdom of God. I want to pray for you right now. Father, I thank you today as we look into your word and go deeper. I pray for every person who's listening to this message. And I pray that you would strengthen them, no matter what's going on in their life, no matter what's imprisoning them right now. You would strengthen them with a sense of mission and purpose that comes directly from you, Jesus. Help us to lift our eyes up off our daily problems and help us to lift our eyes to those around about us who we can share and impact with the good news of the gospel. I ask that our lives would be filled with joy, not problem-free, but filled with joy as we live life on mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, C3 Powerhouse. We love you. Have a phenomenal day.